Welcome to Your Story Matters, the show where we share inspiring stories from all around the world. After you've listened to this one, why don't you tell us yours? Share your story at yourstorymatters.net. But first, here's your host, speaker and writer, Angela Schaefers. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Michael Cupo. He is the author of It's Monday Only in Your Mind, You Are Not Your Thoughts. Michael will be sharing today about his book and his story and how things evolved for him, and hopefully he'll be able to help share some tips and words of wisdom to those in need today that are dealing with different life issues that are keeping them from living their best life. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Angela. It's my pleasure being on it. I appreciate that you're here with us today and that you're willing to share some of your story with our listeners, and I know we'll have some great tips and things like that to share later on in the show when we talk about your book. But before we talk about the book, let's talk a little bit about your background, where, how you grew up, those types of things that were pretty much what established you as a person from the onset. I grew up in um, North New Jersey. An Italian family, uh, there were six children in our family. It was a loving home. My mother and father gave me all the opportunities and provided me with everything that I needed. I have uh, three brothers and, and two sisters. And uh, unfortunately, one of my brothers passed away. And that has a lot to do with what happened to me in, in my life also. Okay. And... Um, you know, it, it was just a, it was just an ordinary childhood with, with you know ordinary friends going to school and and uh, really it was it was um, good, a good life. That's good. I like that. I love to hear those stories. But of course, we know that there's always things that happen along the way, and and there's things that hopefully during our childhood we grew and learned different characteristics that helped us when the things that aren't so good happened. Can you talk a little bit about perhaps when you first started learning your strengths that you had to deal with tragedy? Well, what what really happened to me was I always felt like something was missing in my life. Mm-hmm. And I said, although I had a, a, an ordinary childhood, I was never anything special and for whatever reason I just didn't didn't uh, like that I didn't, like I was always the sixth man on the basketball team or the tenth man on the baseball team and I, I just wanted to be like more attention have more attention but, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. It, it just wasn't there the talent wasn't there you know I mean it really goes goes back to you know I, school. I had a problem. My problem and what I've discovered, you know, is that my problem was in the way that I should have been taught. But the teachers didn't know that. I'm more of a hands-on type of person than the group setting in in a uh, school. You know. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of a lot of those those things. Um, uh, you know those those feelings brought up feelings of, of inadequacies and stuff that I didn't know how to deal with. You know? That makes sense, and that's a great evaluation of yourself. And I'm sure you've done a lot of processing and learning and healing that brought you to that point to understand all that. 
Yeah, it was, it was a lot of pain, you know, a lot of yes. a lot of self investigation, a lot of sitting and and sitting in quietness and learning a lot about myself. What was the turning point? You said you grew up fairly well. You had these other feelings within you that are often very normal. We want more. We think we should have more attention, be recognized, or we don't feel we're good enough because we're not picked for something or other or picked by someone or other. But was there a turning point for you where things started getting out of control? Well, yeah, I would have to say from the time I was 17, I started uh, using and abusing alcohol and, and drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, what I have, have come to understand now is, is that, you know, and, and this came to me one day, is that I had all the brothers. And they drank, and they had parties, and my family had had parties. You know, not nothing that nothing crazy, nothing that was you know extreme, or they didn't have them all the time. But I I I noticed this about myself. We don't have any like even in my life, I didn't have any parties, anything like my my son's christening or my daughter's christening and things like that without alcohol involved. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of like just waiting for my time when I was a child. And when I started drinking uh, alcohol, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen, but it took away those feelings. Mm-hmm. Those, those those feelings of fear it took away the fear to talk to, to girls. It took away the, the fear to dance. It took away the the internal fears that I never learned how to deal with. So as I grew up, the more accessible alcohol and other substances became, mm-hmm. the more I used them. Right, right. And that's very typical when people feel like they want to not deal with reality and not face feelings that are challenging. Alcohol, drugs, a lot of things are a good way to escape that. Right, no, a, a lot of things, and I—that's I, one of the things that I discovered in my book is that alcohol and drugs is only a symptom, you know, and and that's that's really the real addiction is to the self. I was just looking to fill a hole. Mm-hmm. I used so many things, and and there, you know, that's you know, not not getting into the book yet, but that's what my book is all about: how the substance is immaterial. Because if depending on your conditioning, if you don't have one thing, you will just use something else. Mm-hmm. That's right. You're right. You know, very few of us are brought up in, in like the Dalai Lama and thing, and and in an environment where love is taught to us, mm-hmm. love and and you know, so fear is a a taught behavior. You know, anger is a taught behavior. So we we're taught so so many things that aren't conducive to our, our spiritual well-being, to mm-hmm. our well-being, you know. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of like what happened to me, and it's nobody's fault. It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. So what was a breaking point for you? I know you mentioned having older brothers starting to drink early on. Was there a breaking point where you realized, my life is really out of control, I need to do something because this is only going to get worse or end in something very, very bad. Well, it was really like um, when, once my 
my father had a restaurant, and I and I worked in the restaurant, and it, it was very easy for me to sustain an addiction because it was right there all the time. Mm-hmm. There was always alcohol right, right available. So when, um, like I said, my brother passed away, and once he when he passed away, my father like just sold the, the restaurant maybe um, a few months earlier, and. Once he passed away, I, I was living at home, and unfortunately, when you get to a level in some kind of uh, substance abuse, just because you don't have the money or, or the resources to attain the substance, your addiction doesn't uh, you know, go down to that level. You still have to, have to sustain that same addiction, that same level. Mm-hmm. So I was a mess. Because my father sold his restaurant, and in my book I call it the fall of my empire. Mm-hmm. Because that's what happened. I I I became a mess because I I didn't have the resources anymore to uh, sustain a high level of addiction. So I started drinking cheap wine and things like that. And my parents really forced me to do something and look at myself because when my brother died, what they said to me was is. One of one of our sons died already. We're not going to watch another one die. So mm-hmm. either you call for help or you get out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And although I was born and raised in Newark, I was not a street person. I came from a very loving family, and I didn't have the street knowledge to, to go live out on my own and survive, and I knew that much. Mm-hmm. So I went, for, I went for help. But the thing was is that I never really understood any of the underlining factors of why I did the things that I did, mm-hmm. why I behaved, you know, why I behaved in, in, in the ways that I did, what was the causes of it. So I went for help, and I struggled a couple years with, with um, actually saying that, you know what, I have to stop this. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, I kind of like started an, an experimental stage at that point, the first time I went for, for help. You know, each time I was, a con- each time something happened, I was convinced a little bit more that, well, maybe, maybe yeah, I do need to stop, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and then one day I did. And then, like I said, two years later, I finally said, that's it. I, I, I thought... I, I threw in the towel, but, but what I found, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but what I found was is that I threw in the towel of one substance, but there were so many other things underlining that I really had no idea about. Right, you know, right. And that's, as you said earlier, you know, often people will find something else, and sometimes it, it's something that doesn't really look that bad or seem like an addiction. It could be shopping. It could be overeating and gaining, you know, 20 pounds, 30 pounds. So there's a lot of ways that people find something else to cover up the pain and the issues and to not face their reality. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Before you go on, can you share with the listeners some of the ways during those two years that you really found the courage and the strength to get through at least the first part of your healing and the addiction to alcohol? What I think, or what I perceive today, is that 
because of the love that I was given as a child and because of the love in my family, I never gave up on myself. Right. There was always, I think, the natural instinct to live. I think what happens? I mean, I, I've done a lot of research on this. I'm not a doctor or anything, but this is just the way that, that I see it. Is that the less love that you have in your life when tragedy occurs, the less you want to live. That's right. The less, you, the, the less that, that instinct to survive is there. It's not that it isn't there. It's that it's blocked out. Mm-hmm. And that's such a large part of my, you know, what I understand about the conditioned mind patterns and how the mind becomes conditioned and everything. Mm-hmm. So I, even though, like I said, that that's why I wasn't a true street person in the sense where I was never going to totally give up. Thoughts of suicide were never in, in my, you know, in my mind. Now I'm if I am wake up one day, that w- I wouldn't have minded it too much, but I never thought of taking my own life or anything. Right. And that's a good point to share. Love does have a lot to do with some of our ability to survive and to hang in there and to want to do better. When we talk about love, though, what are your thoughts about self-love? I, obviously, if you were doing things to hurt yourself physically, emotionally, mentally, there was a lack of self-love. Can you address that with the listeners? That's um, something else. You know, that's powerful because that's the whole core of existence. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I address in my book is about because of the way I was conditioned. See, when you're born, when you start your existence, you're, you're pure love. There's the innocence in you, there's no bias, there's no prejudice, there's no hate, there's no anger, there's no greed. And as we're, and, I, and this is just my experience, and, and I, I, I really just talk about my experience in my book, because that's the only thing that I, you know, I can really um, identify with. And as I was growing up, and as I was developing these coping skills, these coping mechanisms, I became more and more identified with these these coping mechanisms and these skills and these feelings and all that as who I was, and it blocked out the true essence of who I truly was, mm-hmm. the person who's underneath all that. Mm-hmm. And that is in the form of love. So what happens is, is you know, I I was just acting in the ways that I knew how, Un, unbeknownst to me that it was blocking out not the ability for people to love me, but my ability to love people, mm-hmm. because it, my life was based in a self-centered existence, and that's why I say the real the real um, the addiction in our society, and what people don't look at is is the, not the addiction to the substance, but the addiction to themselves. Mm-hmm. And the more that that I held on to this self-created image of who I was, that was all based in the material world and the outside, you know, outside things, the less of me there was, the less complete I was, the less of love that was the, the default setting of my mind. And the less I connected with people, the more I struggled with life, the oh my God, it goes on and on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, and I understand where you're coming from. So you went through the two years of dealing with the alcohol issue, 
And you said then you went on to other things that were addictions also and, and prevented you from living your best life and being whole and healed. What were those things and what was that part of your life like? This is where my real lessons began, although at the time they weren't lessons. It, it goes to what you said before. You know, you use a lot of different things, but even success can block out love. Even success. See, what happened to me is is when I so-called threw in the towel and and now okay, no no longer do I have my clutch of of alcohol or other um substances to use. So what am I gonna use? So what I started using was I was getting my life back together. And, and on the outer level, my life, this is the scariest part. My life is beautiful. Mm-hmm. When I, I, five years ago, when the book came from is, is I got addicted to pain medication. When I got addicted to pain medication, my life was exactly the way I wanted it. Mm-hmm. That's the scary part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and all that happened when I say I use other things, because it's always in the form of how I identify these things with who I am. Right, right. And I, I, whether I got I got married, I had a job, you know, the job that I'm still at today, almost 25 years, two children I have. I Today, I, you know, I have a 19, an 18-year-old daughter, she's going to be 19 in May, and a, and a 16-year-old son. And... I mean, I had vacations, promotions. I, I make more money than I ever made in, in my entire life. My 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 life is beautiful, and and yet I was never truly happy. Mm-hmm. And it had nothing to do with the way my life was structured. It was the way that I viewed life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was the way I, I you know, like it, it was the way I. I identified all these things with success. You know, right. they, they say the great American dream, but who's that good for? That's good for government. You know, become a productive member of society. That that doesn't necessarily equate to happiness. Right. Well, the, the problem with our achievements is it still goes back to once that's all stripped away, if, God forbid, that's all stripped away, Perhaps your family is gone. Perhaps your job is gone. Perhaps your home is gone. Whatever it looks like, who are we then? And what do we have to stand on? So I totally can understand what you're talking about. And I think that there is an addiction process in working and struggling and striving towards fulfilling that American dream, if you will, or in other countries, the dream that's set up in everyone's mind there. I would love for you to talk to the listeners a little bit about, again, how did you recognize the depth of your problem with addiction and then start to unravel that for you? Because I really appreciate that you're sharing this concept that there is something very much at our core that creates our behaviors and creates that lack of self-love and the ability to step back and say, what am I doing? Right, right. Well, I never understood that. Like, I I never understood that the first 18 years of my so-called um, recovery. And, and I just lived my life. And I would get angry. I would, I would, you know, 
as I put it, is I was um, controlled by life like I was a puppet on a string. So many situations control the way I reacted to life. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what was what was going on. I just lived my life. I was just existing, you know. I right. wasn't doing anything right or wrong. I just did what I did. But once what happened is is once I got addicted to the pain medication, once I came off of that, it took like two years. And and this is so valuable to to me is one day and I don't minimize what I was using because whatever has you in its grip, it doesn't matter. That's right. So I mean, I was using a mild pain medication. It was actually supposedly non-narcotic, but it didn't matter. It had me in its grip. And I was passing a wedding one day. And at the time, my daughter was 13 and my son was 11. And I said to myself, and, and this is what I attribute to the love that was beneath all this, the love of my parents, the love that people have given me, the prayers that, that I was probably, you know, people were saying prayers for me mm -hmm. all, all, all the years, you know, because it's all energy. Mm -hmm. So what, what happened was, as I was, I was passing this wedding, I said, if I don't get off this medication, how am I going to be there for my children? This is the most important years of their life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that unself-centered, purely for the love of my children, thought changed my whole existence. Wow! See, and and That's and I powerful. understand that. Yeah, because you think of this, and I'm all, I'm I'm only I'm going to say this in the context of what it is. But you think of a person, take a person like. Adolf Hitler, his whole thing starts with one thought, Angela. One thought. It starts with that first thought. And the more you feed that thought, energy, the more it grows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the more it stands to hold the people. I'm experiencing that now with my book, with Facebook, with, with my writings. How that thought that started with my children, with how am I going to be there for them, how it has grown by me cultivating that thought, that, that love, because that's the base of it. It's amazing what is happening in, in my life with, with wanting to project that, that message to others. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it, my book is not about me, it's my message. Right. That's the whole context of, of my, my existence, is, is to share what happened to me, to, to maybe help one person not have to go through what I went through. Absolutely. And of course, that's what we promote and encourage here on Your Story Matters, is sharing the message in your story so that you can encourage and inspire other people. And, and we never know who's going to be encouraged or inspired or who's going through something similar or who can identify with our own journey and our own pain and our own healing. Can you share with the listeners some of the key tips that they will find 
by picking up your book. It's Monday Only in Your Mind, You Are Not Your Thoughts. So where I got the title, especially the, the, the second part, but where I got the title was is the most important thing that I learned when when I finally got off the, the medication, I'll, I'll, I'll share this in brief. I started reading all the different religions about Hinduism, about... I was brought up a Catholic, and I, I read the Bible, you know, in my earlier years, because there was always something, and I don't want to say missing, but there was always a something a, like a void in my life. There was always, I was always looking for something else. I was never content with, with who I was. So there was always a, a search, kind of, you know. So this time, now you're going to think of this. When you have life exactly how you want it, and you're still not happy, well, where do you turn then, you know? Mm-hmm. So I started reading about the different religions. I start, started with Hinduism, and I went into Buddhism. And, and, and I wasn't practicing anything. I wasn't looking to become a Hindu or a Buddhist or, or a born-again Christian or anything like that. I just wanted to read, see what these, these books were about, what I was looking for something. And what happened was, is to me, what they all pointed to, this I read for about three years, many, many books, so many books. And what I found was, is that they all pointed to the same place, the mind and love. Mm-hmm. And that if I didn't learn how to control my mind, I was never going to, the love that was, that was the true essence of who we are was never going to be allowed to, to be false setting of my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, it was, I was never going to be happy. That's what I found. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's profound. So, and I have to agree with you is that you have to get to that core of who we are and our thoughts and our feelings and what's, available to us, which is complete joy and peace and happiness. But that's a, that's a journey, I think, for everyone. Right, and I, and I agree. And that's where my, my book came from. So so just to, to, to say what the, the most important thing I was finding was that I had to learn how to quiet my mind. Mm-hmm. That was the, that's what I got out of everything. Is that I learned, I had to learn how to sit because I understood how... I always had to be busy in my mm-hmm. life. And as long as I was doing something, I was okay. But that's what happened kind of like when I reflected back. Yeah, I was okay when I was busy. But as, I, as my children got older, as my house was in order and I didn't have as much work to do, there wasn't as much business, which are really our distractions to our own love. That's right. And and then that's where the uncomfortableness came about. And then when there was nothing else to use, well, I started using pain medication. I started using a substance again, mm-hmm. a different substance, you know. The one that for me works the best, mm-hmm. you know. And that's what I found that, that, okay, I had to learn how to be with myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the, the what, what it goes back to what you were saying. That's how... I started learning how to truly love myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by understanding that I wasn't, this isn't what, who I was. This is who I was conditioned to be. That's right. All my, every behavior, every reaction, 
everything that I did up to that point, it was only because that's the way I was conditioned. Nobody ever taught me how to deal with my inadequacies or how to deal with my fears. So I didn't know how to sit and allow them to to be with them. So once I started understanding that, and, and I started understanding the true nature of my malady, of, of my behavior, of my problem. Mm-hmm. And once I started sitting and my mind started to settle, the reactions that I, that I was always a reactor. My children would say something, boom, I would react. It would just be a natural thing. It happens instantly. Mm-hmm. I started not reacting to situations a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it wasn't, it was one situation at a time. I didn't make any vows. I didn't make any pledges that this is how I was going to be. I was going to do this. All I knew is, is I had to sit. Right. And on its own, this is what happens. Is on its own, my mind started settling. Mm. It started settling to the point where I started understanding a lot of my behavior. I started seeing my behavior and how it was all based in satisfying the self. Mm-hmm. See, once once you can identify, and this is the importance of sitting is by de- developing discipline, once I started identifying the core of my behavior, then I had something tangible to deal with. Mm-hmm. It, wasn't a, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't about uh, waiting for this God up in heaven to, to um, save me, or, or it wasn't about, well, this is just who I am. I, I started understanding that I had a real tool to change my behavior. That's awesome. It, it changed. Oh my God. It, it's so powerful. Yes, it is. It is. And I'm so grateful that you're sharing that and more in your book so that others can, if not on their journey already, start the journey to real healing and, and an amazing, wonderful life that's available to all of us. Can you share with the listeners where they can connect with you and get a copy of your book? Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble online. And there's also um, my website is mondayinyourmind.com. It's also available through there. I, I write these daily uh, readings, messages. And this is funny because this is what happens. You know, I started practicing quietness right away because I understood that was at the core of what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. So I started writing these text messages and send them to people. Now, I've been writing them for five years. Mm. And, and uh, you know, that's a lot of text messages all, every day. And I hope so you have the happened, unlimited plan. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but what happens is, is that they, this is what happens. See, there's so much involved. Because what happens is, is when you start getting quiet, you start reaching your your potential. You start experiencing things that things that you never thought were there before that were they were blocked by the noise in the head, the conditioning. I must have always been a writer, but didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Because once once I that's where the book arose from. I never aspired to write a book. It was never my dream to 
write a book it was not something I even thought about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But after three years, like I said, I read I read a lot of books and everything, and I was practicing and I was seeing, you know, changes in my life and a lot of different. Uh, I wasn't reacting that way, but I knew after like three years, it was time to stop reading. And it was time to start practice. The reading, although I'm not going to tell anybody to read, not to read, because then they won't buy my book, but I'm all kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the reading is still a searching. And as long as you're searching, you're not complete. Completeness comes when you know exactly who you are and you accept yourself, that's completeness, and, and that's loving yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. When I started understanding that and started understanding how it was the conditioning that made me who I was, and that's not who I was, and I started sitting more and more and understanding that, there was a peace that, that passed all understanding that, that, that came over me. Mm. And one day after three years, I just wrote. I was just, I just, it was time to start writing. And I just wrote. And I wrote, and I wrote, and it was never hard for me to write because it, it's what was there. Inside. And I just wrote. Right. Yeah. Right. And I'm glad and that just, you did. I'm so grateful that you have written your story and published and are promoting your book and I think that's wonderful. It's going to be a wonderful gift for a lot of people and life-changing for them. Michael, thank you so much for sharing a part of your story today and for sharing about your book. And I wish you the best in your endeavors and your journey. Well, thank you very much, Angel, Angel, and thank you for having me on. And it was really my pleasure. <laughs> 